We are talking about the minor prophet and one of the words that you can't help but run into and think about as you work through uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, but also the minor prophets is judgment, the word judgment. Now, when you think of judgment, if you had to assign a positive or a negative to that, what would you assign? Negative, right? I mean, it's a pretty negative word, right? It carries a negative connotation. And I've, I've really been thinking about that a lot lately. Should it? Should it carry a negative connotation? Surely there is a negative aspect to it, um, but it doesn't always have to be negative, and it definitely doesn't have to be negative for everyone. As I thought about that this morning, because I don't think it's a, a spoiler <laughs> to say that judgment is both positive and negative, isn't it? Um, if you are a person who is innocent and you're being oppressed by someone who is evil and wicked, do you want judgment to come in? Do you want justice to play out if you're innocent and you're being oppressed? Yes, absolutely. Please, please, please. I'm dying for justice. I'm dying for judgment. I'm dying for someone to come in and make things right, to settle things. You know, if you're, yeah, I, I don't know why I always think about the Wild West, but I always think about, you know, those Western movies and you think about the way that uh, things were before there was law and order in a community. And if you were a person who was just trying to mind your own business, maybe you were trying to run a shop, but there was no marshal or there was no sheriff or there was no law in town and the bad guys were pretty much running the town, you know, you would want judgment, right? You'd want a peacekeeper, a lawkeeper, a judge, a marshal, a sheriff to come in and settle things, to take care of the bad guys, to stop the bad guys from doing what they're doing. The same is true with God's people, isn't it? They, God's people, when they were doing right and when they were right, longed for the judgment of God. In fact, it's interesting that some of the, the New Testament passages that we think of um, that where, where Paul or the apostles will say that everybody's going to stand before the judgment or that everybody's going to be judged by God. Sometimes Paul would say things like that in a very positive way. Because he was being judged by the people of his day, saying, hey, you're a liar, we don't believe you, you know, you're a false teacher, you're not really an apostle. You know, so they were accusing Paul of various things, and Paul would say, I can't wait till God judges me, because he will vindicate me. God knows that I'm telling the truth. God knows that I'm, I'm truly an apostle. And even if you don't believe me, he's the one before whom I will stand. So when you're innocent, and especially when you're oppressed and innocent, you long for the judgment of God. But when you're guilty, the judgment of God should terrify you, shouldn't it? But it should not terrify you if you're innocent. It should not terrify you if you are forgiven. It should not terrify you if you are in a right relationship with God. And this thought occurred to me today that sometimes, and I think I think that maybe it's true in a biblical sense, and it's true in, in our experience, that the people who deserve judgment the least or have the least reason to be afraid of judgment actually think about it and are afraid of it the most. 
And the people that have the most reason to fear judgment actually are afraid of it the least because they don't care, right? Um, and, and, and so let's, let's think through that idea of judgment and should you fear God's judgment? And what should your thoughts about God's judgment be? And so we're going to look at the, the book of Joel and I really uh, toyed around with how do we go through this, but Joel chapter one, so if you got your Bible, Joel chapter one, Starting in verse 1, I, I want to read the whole book, and I was debating on whether or not just to read it straight through and then go back and talk about it, but I think we'll, we'll sort of break it up just a little bit, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we go, because it's, it's only three chapters, and again, that, you know me, that's one of the reasons I love the Minor Prophets is because you can read the whole thing, and you can sit down, and you can read from the beginning to the end of it, and it, it's good, and it's healthy, and even if you don't understand it, that's okay, read it again. Read it again. Read it in a different translation. Uh, grab a commentary. What did they say about it? Uh, we don't know a whole lot. Most of the commentaries will tell you that we don't know really anything about Joel. Even when he prophesied, there's a lot of debate about when Joel lived and when Joel prophesied because he doesn't talk about any specific kings. That's kind of one of the ways that we date the prophets. Okay, we know when that king was the king, and so we say that that, that must be when this took place, but Joel doesn't do that. Um, and so we really don't know when. We know that he prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, and perhaps that was the only kingdom left. Perhaps this was after Israel had fallen uh, to the Assyrians, and perhaps that's when he, he prophesied. One of the interesting things about the book of Joel is that um, about, I think I read one commentary said that about a third of the verses in the book of Joel are either a quotation of or an allusion to uh, other prophetic books and other prophetic passages. Um, so either, either they took a lot from Joel or Joel took a lot from them, depending on when the book of Joel was written. We really don't know. So some people say, well, he borrowed a lot from these other authors or perhaps those other authors borrowed a lot from him. Um, you know, there's, there's debate back and forth. But one way or the other, they drew from each other's material. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. So something big has happened, hasn't it? Has anything like this ever happened before? Have you ever seen anything like this in your days? You elders, have you seen anything like this in your day? Did your fathers tell you anything like this that has happened? This event that has happened, you're going to tell your kids, and your kids are going to tell their kids, and their kids are going to tell their kids. He says, verse 4, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So what is the big event that has taken place? A plague of locusts, right? A plague of locusts has come through and wiped everything out. And he's going to describe what that's like. And then he's going to draw some parallels to that and say, this is, this is a day of the Lord, a day of judgment, this locust plague. But it also points forward to a future day of the Lord, God's coming judgment. And because he's a prophet, he's telling them, this is your fault. This has happened, and what will happen 
is your fault and you need to repent of your sins. Now, it's interesting, Joel doesn't really say what are their sins. I I think he just assumes they know what their sins are because there were other prophets telling them what their sins were and they should have known what their sins were. But he says this, Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Why is it cut off from your mouth? Because the locust ate everything, right? There's nothing left. Wake up, weep and wail. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Now, I think by nation, he's, he's probably still talking about the locusts, right? And he, he's comparing them to a, a nation. Its teeth are lion's teeth. And it has fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament, weep, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Oh, that's a powerful image, isn't it? Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Her bride, her, her groom has died. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. And he tells them to, first word of verse eight, what? Lament, lament. And then verse 11, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. I like that sort of play on words there. All of this is dried up, and our gladness is dried up. Everything is gone. I I can't even really imagine, even even in our era, even in our day, I can't imagine what it would be like for a swarm of locusts to come through. And again, he he lists off four different types of locusts, this kind and the hopping one and the the biting one. So he he lists off all these and he says, what this one didn't eat, this one ate. And what this one didn't eat, this one ate. And this one didn't eat, that one ate. And they destroyed everything and there is nothing left. But especially in an agricultural community where everything depends on the things that he's listing off, the wheat and the barley and the, the pomegranate and the vine and the grapes and all of these things, it's gone. It's all gone. And what does he tell them to do? He lists off these words like lament, be ashamed, wake up, weep, wail. See, sometimes that's why, again, like I said in the beginning, that the people who ought to fear judgment the most fear judgment the least because they're asleep. They're just coasting. And this is what all of the prophets would say. Wake up. Don't you see what's happened? And Joel's going to use this event, this locust event, to say a worse day of the Lord is going to come. And I think he's using this army of locusts to point forward to an actual army that's going to come through. And to say, if you don't wake up, this is your future. This is your destiny. The day of the Lord is coming. Do you see what's happened? And do you see why it's happened? 
Wake up. Wake up. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. You see, again, all of those words he's using, put on sackcloth, lament, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, cry out to the Lord. Wake up, people. Look what you're doing. Look what your actions are causing. And again, he's not being real specific with what their sins are because they know, or they should know, the prophets have been telling them Moses had given them the law. And whatever it was that they were doing at that time to violate that truth and that law and that covenant, they needed to wake up and recognize what they were doing. And saying, Joel is saying, this is a wake-up call. This locust event, this locust plague is a wake-up call. And if you don't open your eyes and lament and put on sackcloth and fast and cry out to the Lord, you're in trouble. Verse 15, alas, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep shut, uh, suffer. I, I was reading through this and I couldn't help but think about Romans chapter 8. If you were in my Romans class, you know I love Romans 8. And the way Paul talks about the entire creation is groaning under a curse, right? And that it's longing to be set free from its curse, that it's longing to be redeemed. And so here Joel is using similar type of imagery, saying that the seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, everything, all of the food is gone. But then he even talks about the beasts, and it says that the beasts groan, the cattle are perplexed, the flocks of sheep suffer. Obviously, because there is no food for person or for animal. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Then chapter 2 and verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So do you see how there's sort of this back and forth? Is Joel talking about events of the past, events of the present, or events of the future? And I think the answer is yes. It's all of those things, right? He's saying this, this event that's happened, this locust plague and why it's happening, and what's going on right now, this is a foreshadow of what's to come. The day of the Lord, it's coming, it is near. 
A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been, never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is, listen to this imagery, the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. That's powerful imagery, isn't it? I mean, just imagine, I mean, maybe you've seen a movie or something where like there's the big machinery and it's like going through the forest. And so like on in front of them, there's this lush green forest. He says, it's like the Garden of Eden. It's beautiful and wonderful and lush and everything is good. And then all of a sudden this army sweeps through and behind them there is nothing. It's all laid bare and waste and desolate. Now, is he talking about the locusts? Or is he talking about like an actual army that's going to sweep through? I think the answer is yes, right? He's, he's sort of layering the pictures on top of each other. Because this, in a very literal sense, this is exactly what the locusts have done, hasn't it? It's been like this beautiful, wonderful, fertile fields and, and vines and gardens. Everything is good. And then the locusts sweep through and behind them, there is nothing. But I think he's also pointing forward to a future day to say there is going to be on the mountain this great horde of people and they're going to sweep through and nothing is going to be left. They're going to destroy everything. And the message is the same. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop living the way that you're living. Wake up. And turn to the Lord, repent, lament, weep, wail, change, do what you're supposed to do. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. But there's also, I think, important to point out that, that there is uh, this, this imagery and this idea of desolate wilderness, sort of the unmaking of things, you might say. You know, where things are beautiful and wonderful, cities and gardens, things have been cultivated and planted and things are, are flourishing and then judgment comes through and then there's just wilderness and waste. This is very common throughout the, the prophets. That This is exactly what sin causes. It causes death. It causes destruction. It causes the undoing of creation. It causes the undoing of things that are ordered. Do, do we see how that even happened in, we're using the, the phrase even, Garden of Eden, right? How in the garden, not only did God put things in order and establish things and things were harmonious and beautiful, and then he told Adam to go and to cultivate and to work the land and to continue to work things so that they're good and beautiful. But then, but then when sin entered the world, then the ground itself was cursed, thorns and thistles. The work of his hands became difficult and challenging. And as time goes on, it becomes more desolate and more waste. This is what sin does. This is what sin causes. I noticed that it says chapter 1. I, I think I messed that up. It should be chapter 2. So if you're following along. Um, Okay, their appearance, this desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Verse four, their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run 
As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. And again, is he talking about locusts or is he talking about the armies? I think the answer is yes. There, there's imagery of both. He says, just like these locusts, they're like, they're like an army. They're like war horses. And they, they, they're, they're like these things. They jump from mountain to mountain, but they devour everything in their path. Verse 7, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. Do you, do you see how that's true of locusts, right? They're, they get in everything and they're everywhere. They leap up on the, on the walls. They go in through the windows. They take and they devour and there's no weapon that can stand against them. But Joel, I think, is saying this exact thing is going to happen to you on a larger scale. Why? Because of your sin. Wake up. And again, it, it, we, we have this tendency to read these prophetic writings and we, we kind of feel like God's being harsh. God's being, oh, you, why? You're saying you're going to bring these, the bad guys to town? It's what they asked for. It's what we ask for. It's what humanity asks for. When we say, God, I don't want your protection. I don't want to live in the garden. I don't want to do things your way. I don't want to say no to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to take it. I want to eat it. I want to do what my heart wants to do. I want to see and I want to take and I want to live like everybody else and have what my heart desires. When we say that, we're saying to God, I don't want your protection. I don't want you to be my God. I mean, it's, we lived this out even when we were kids, didn't we? And our, if we're parents or grandparents, we've heard it. You're not the boss of me, right? I can do whatever I want to. You're not the boss of me. It's exactly the way humanity has been. It's exactly the way you and I have been. That's exactly the way Judah has been. And why are we surprised when God says, then I'll give you what you ask for? You want to live outside of covenant with me? We talked last week about Hosea and Gomer and how awful it sounds like that God is saying, you, you've been a prostitute. But that's, exact, that's exactly what they had done. And God says, then this is exactly, if you don't want to live behind the shelter of my wall, if you want to live out in the wilderness, then you live out in the wilderness. If you don't want me to be your rock, if you don't want me to be your fortress, if you don't want me to be your protector, if you don't want my, my wings to shelter you from the storm, then you go and you live out there and see what it's like. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb upon the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and, moon, and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? 
Yet even now, here's verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. (laughs) That's a good line, isn't it? Rend your hearts and not your garments. I'm not not interested in show. I'm not interested in, in going through the motions of repentance and, oh, I'm so sorry, and tear your clothes. I'm not interested in that. Rend your heart. Change your heart. And if you do, if you return to me, if you fast and you weep and you mourn and you rend your heart and not your garment, if you return to the Lord your God, Look at what it says. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Now that's the shocking part. In our culture, we tend to be pretty shocked that God is judgmental, right? Like, whew, that's a pretty harsh God, you know, God has anger, God has wrath, and we get a little bit, you know, maybe a little offended or a little uncomfortable when we talk about God's judgment. What actually ought to shock us is that God, it isn't that God is, has judgment or wrath, of course he does. Of course he does. What ought to shock us is that God is so merciful, that God is so gracious, that God is so slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Do you know that this phrase is repeated over and over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament? You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In fact, do you remember, we'll get to this in a few weeks, when Jonah goes to Nineveh and God has mercy on them, Jonah's like, I knew it, I knew it. That's why I didn't want to come here in the first place, God, because I knew that's the kind of God you are. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's fine when you're giving me your grace and mercy. That's good. I appreciate it, Lord. But don't you dare give it to Ninevites. Don't you dare give it to Assyrians. See, this, this character of God, this is what theology is all about. I'm afraid that we focus a lot on on words like omnipotence, all-powerful. Yes, God is all-powerful. We we focus on omniscience, God knows everything. Yes, omnipresence, God is everywhere at at, at any given moment. God is everywhere. Yes, all of those things are true. But biblical theology, biblical theology is focused far more on the fact that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's biblical theology. The way that Westerners like to think about God is God's omnipotence and God's omnipresence and all of these big fancy words, and we like to think about that kind of theology. This is what we ought to sit and meditate upon. But this is actually the very core and the very foundation of repentance. See, because the the act of repenting, the act of tearing your clothes or tearing your heart, the act of weeping and mourning and lamenting and, and praying to God for forgiveness, it presupposes God's character. On the one hand, it it automatically assumes that you know God takes sin seriously. And that God takes affronts to his covenant and to his character and to his honor seriously. 
But it also presupposes that you understand that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because if you didn't know God was wrathful, God was a jealous God, God takes seriously his honor, his reputation, his covenant, then why would you repent? Why wouldn't you just shrug your shoulders and say, he doesn't care, whatever, you know, God just wants me to be happy. I'm just going to do what I want to do. If you know who God is, you say God takes sin seriously. But at at the same time, why would you repent if you thought he'll never forgive me? He he could never forgive me for the things that I've done. And I'm afraid we have people in both categories, don't we? And maybe some of us. Maybe some of us, maybe that are engaged right now in things in our life, and, and we think, you know what, God doesn't really care. You know, he doesn't really care. He doesn't really notice. He doesn't really, he just wants me to be happy. I'm just, I'm just doing what makes me happy. And, and that's the world talking, isn't it? And not just our, our world and our culture, it goes back to the garden. But this God, the God, Yahweh God, Jesus, the, the God that Jesus embodies and personifies, that God takes sin more seriously than you can possibly imagine. But at the same time, we also have people that say, why would I repent? Why would I even try? Because I've done some things of which I'm so ashamed, I don't think God would ever forgive me. And they don't realize that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Maybe not you, but maybe your neighbor. You have neighbors that would say, you know what? I used to go to church and I would love to go to church with you, but I've heard this a thousand times. You've probably heard it too. If I ever went in a church building, it'd probably fall down around me, right? The roof would cave in because I'm so bad. They may be joking a little bit, I've got a cousin that says, if I ever come to church, you're going to need more water that's in, than in the baptistry. You're going to need like a fire hose for me, you know. And he's kind of joking, but I think somewhere in the back of his mind, he says, God could never forgive me. The whole point of the prophets is that you understand both. Yes, God is a God who takes sin seriously, but shockingly, God is also a God who is more gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love than you could possibly imagine. And based on those two truths, repent. Because God relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Stop everything, everything, and let's pray. Stop everything, and let's change what we're doing and return to the Lord. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations." 
I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Again, I think there's images of both the armies and the army of the locusts. Just like God can drive out a plague of locusts, he can drive out the armies from the north. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the later rain as before." The threshing floors should be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. Do you see this picture? Do you see this picture that runs through the entire Bible? This picture of everything is beautiful, everything is wonderful, then sin sweeps through and destroys everything and it's wilderness and it's waste and it's desolate and there's not even a cow there anymore. Everything is gone. And then all of a sudden God sweeps through with his grace and his mercy and things flourish again and it's back to being the Garden of Eden. God restores. God renews. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Oh, wait a second. that, That passage seems familiar, doesn't it? Where does that come from? Acts chapter two, right? The day of Pentecost, right? Peter is standing up because they're speaking in tongues and everybody's asking what's going on. And he says, this is what's going on. The the days that Joel said were coming, it's already begun. This renewal, this restoration, this reign of the Messiah, it's already begun. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul said that, Romans chapter 10, didn't he quote it from Joel? Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Do you see how the gospel plays into that? That Joel is saying restoration is coming, renewal is coming, destruction of God's enemies is coming. All of the the good promises that I've made, if you turn to me and you call upon me and you trust in me and you follow me, I will deliver you. And Peter says and Paul says, that begins now. This renewal begins now. It starts now because Jesus has given his life to take away the plague. Joel chapter 3. 
Verse 1, for behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. He says, I will judge them for all of these things that they've done. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You've sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you've sold them and I will return your payment on your own head. I'll sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they'll sell them to the Sabians. To a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Now, God is telling the nations this, right? Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. You recognize that language from Isaiah? When Isaiah tells God's people, when the Messiah comes, you can beat your swords and spears into farming tools. Now he tells the nations, and you nations that have plagued my people, now you're going to have to turn your farming tools into weapons because I'm coming to war against you and I will destroy you. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in. Tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. I know we're out of time, but here's a final thought. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Return to the Lord. And if you're away from him, return to the Lord, knowing that he takes sin seriously, so seriously that he gave his son to deal with the sin problem. But he's also gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, so much so that he gave his son to deal with the sin problem. So return to him and take shelter in him and know that the day of the Lord, for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing to be afraid of. 
there is only something to be longed for. I long for the day of the Lord. Not because I'm right, but because he's made me right. And because he's going to make everything right. He is going to fix all that's wrong and undo all that's come undone. He is going to renew. He is going to restore. He is going to save. He is going to give his people all of the promises that he's always promised. So we don't have to be afraid of the day of the Lord if we are in Christ Jesus and taking shelter in him. But if we are not, and we're just going blindly through our life, doing what we want to do, following our own heart, we ought to be very afraid. And we ought to warn our neighbors that the day of the Lord is coming, but also that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, thank you for being who you are, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. May we take shelter in you, Father. May we take shelter in your Son. We look forward, Father, to the day when you take away evil, to the day that you destroy sin, and the day you destroy death, and that you restore and renew, and that you bless and that you save us as you've already begun to do in Christ Jesus. And we celebrate that good news in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.